Hey, welcome to a Stonewall's Perspective podcast. In this podcast, Alex gives his perspective on what is going on in the world. It is his mission to bring the light of the gospel into every aspect of life. We hope you enjoy. Welcome back to the Alex Stone Show. I'm your host, Alex Stone. I'm on a mission to spread the light of the gospel into every aspect of life. And yes, I did say every, including the things that most Christians do not like to discuss, such as politics. Today is Saturday, February 10th, and the leadership principle for the day says, communication is essential in leadership. People need to know where you are going in order to follow. Cast the vision, speak up, and communicate. The problem that most of Americans have in leadership is they don't cast vision for the future. And Scripture is very clear that if there is no vision, the people will perish. In the United States of America, we need a vision for the future so that we will survive as a nation, so that we will survive as a republic. With that being said, today's episode, we have another very special guest. He is a New York Times number one best-selling author. He is a film producer, and he was actually the author of the history book that I used in my American history class in college this year. Please welcome Larry Schweikert. Larry, how are you doing today, sir? Hi, Alex. I see you have all the right helmets there behind you. You've got Sun Devils, you've got Cardinals. Now, I live in Arizona, but I'm still a Dallas Cowboy fan. But other than that, you've got all the right helmets back there. Yes, sir. Well, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not from Arizona. I actually live in Kansas City, Missouri, but my dad grew up in Arizona and lived there for most of his uh, life. And so I, you know, was raised believing in the way of, you know, the Sun Devils, Cardinals, uh, and basically every Arizona sports team except for uh, University of Arizona. Right. Uh, They're evil. They are. They are disgusting. Uh, with that being said, you know, like I said, you're an author. Um, you know, you're one of the brightest minds that I've ever looked at, and um, this book is phenomenal. Uh, it, it's it's really uh, obviously very thick. One of the one of the best history books that I've ever read. And as my as my professor described it, it was the truest to American history that he has ever read. Um, you know, I, I want to talk about history. I want to talk about the United States of America. I want to talk about your book that you have releasing very soon, A Patriot's History of Globalism. But before you do that, can you talk ab about yourself to my audience? You know, who are you? Uh, where did you come from? How did you get to where you are today? Well, I'm a native Arizonan. I was born in uh, Mesa Hospital and lived in a place called Higley, which uh, I went to school with Total school is 100 people. There were two classes that were joined together. I think our graduating class was eight. Um, and of course, right now, it's it's wall-to-wall -wall homes, I mean, for as far as you can see. Uh, I went to Chandler High School and then went to Arizona State from 1968 to 72 and got a BA in political science, which I found pretty useless. Because, of course, all that time I was playing in rock bands and I wasn't too interested in school. And uh, literally the weekend I graduated, we went on the road and I started 
being on the road with various rock and roll bands for the next five or so years. And uh, we got pretty close, you know, Almost Famous is the name of the movie. And we, we got Almost Famous. We were opening for Steppenwolf, the James Gang, Savoy Brown. The Who sat through our set at the Troubadour. We, we didn't quite make it. It was a very hard life. I, uh, I weighed 129 pounds and uh, <laughs> I was starving. I lived on $5 a week which I know it was a lot more back then, but even then $5 a week doesn't go very far. And after several years, I decided I wanted to settle down in Arizona and perhaps do something during the day to earn regular money and keep up playing at night, nightclubs. And I ended up going back to school to get a teaching certificate. And they said, well, you got a degree in political science, but you never had a U.S. history course. And I hadn't. So I took a U.S. history course in a summer class and within six weeks, I said, I want to be that guy. How do I become a professor? And so I ended up getting a master's from ASU, a PhD from University of California, Santa Barbara, got a job at the University of Dayton in Ohio, where I taught for the next 31 years. And then I retired in 2016 and came out here to Arizona um, to stay in the sun because I was tired of tornadoes and ice and snow and all the other junk that's in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I, I really hate all that junk that's in the Midwest. It's, you know, inspiring how you, you know, got to, you know, where you are today, you know, going to ASU, getting political science, and then just moving forward in your life and, and you know, you know, walking into success. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your books. Um, you know, obviously, A Patriot's History of the United States. There's a couple others. What inspired you to write some of these books that you've written? Well, um, I took what my mentor at Arizona State, a guy named Robert Lowenberg, who was a genius, one of the three geniuses I met in my life. I took what he said to heart. He said, publish or perish. He says, I'm not kidding. In this business, if you want to get ahead, you want to get tenure, you want to get promotions, you need to publish. So, okay, I'll do that. I had never written anything in my life, but starting in 1977 or 8, I began to write articles that were published. And for the next uh, 15, 20 years, I wrote academic stuff that nobody read. I mean, it got cited, but nobody really was reading it. And around uh, 1998, 99, I decided I'm going to make a change here. I want to write history that people will actually read. And um, so one thing led to another. Mike Allen and I had been grousing about the fact that the um, U.S. history textbooks were just terrible. We couldn't teach from them because we were arguing with them so much. So we decided to write our own book for our use. Um, originally, the title was not A Patriot's History. It was A Cup of Hope. But uh, we were going to write it for our own use, and we ended up with a 2,000-page book. This one's, uh, you know, almost 1,000. Uh, when we started, we had something as double that size. But again, we didn't expect to sell it. We thought we'd sell it out of the back of a van, like, you know, paper or plastic straws in California or other kind of banned items, you know. And so um, we did get a publisher, uh, Sentinel, part of the Penguin Group. And they made it the lead-off book out of their imprint that came out in 2004. And uh, lo and behold, it took off. Everybody reviewed it well. Wall Street Journal, Claremont Review of Books, National Review. 
And um, then in 2010, uh, I was on the Glenn Beck show when Glenn was at the peak of his popularity and power. He had three and a half million nightly viewers. And I gave him a copy of Patriot's History. And he goes, uh, do I know this book? I don't know this book. And so uh, he called me a week later and said, hey, I, over the weekend, I read your book, all thousand pages of it. He goes, this is a great book. And so Glenn began putting the book up every single night on his show and touting it three, four, five times a night. It was millions of dollars in free advertising. And we shot to the top of the New York Times list and stayed there for a month. And, um, you know, by then I'd already written some other books for the publisher including 48 Liberal Lies uh, that you probably learned in school and wrote a bunch of. So I got into what's called trade publishing as opposed to academic publishing. And of course, the latest one is out, I think, in two weeks on the 20th called The Patriots History of Globalism, Its Rise and Decline. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it's exciting to hear about that and, and how you rose to fame with your book and Glenn Beck reading it and and all of these things, I, I love American history. I love the founding of our nation. Uh, and it doesn't just start in 1776. It goes, you know, way before that uh, mm -hmm. in England. Um, can, can you give my audience, and I'm sure most of my audience knows this because they're all educated and probably the smartest people in all of podcast land. Uh, but can you give my audience an um, American history in a nutshell? In about sure. Well, we teach in Patriots history um, the four pillars of American exceptionalism. We ask what causes America to be different and exceptional. And the first pillar is a Christian, mostly Protestant, religious tradition. And the reason that's so important is it's bottom-up church govern governance. It's congregationalism. The second one is uh, common law, which only we and the English have ever had. And again, that's bottom-up governance as opposed to divine right of kings or civil law, which is top-down, which is what governs all of Europe, all of Africa, all of Asia, all of Latin America. Um, the third pillar is private property with written titles and deeds. And then the last is a free market economy. No nation in the world's history has had all four of these, let alone all four from its founding, like America had. So when you look at why the colonists rebelled against England, it was that they were not being treated with the rights of Englishmen. That is, they were not exercising bottom-up governance. And it's interesting that when you look at the COVID or China virus, um, and people would look at places like Australia or Canada and go, well, why are they so tyrannical? They're democracies, aren't they? And the answer is, yes, they're democracies, but they had no history whatsoever of bottom-up governance because for over 100 years in each case, they were governed top-down in the British dominion system. So they have had no experience with bottom-up governance, so it's pretty easy to impose policies in those nations from the top down. Um, so U.S. history has unfolded in that manner with this constant struggle, um, usually successful, by the bottom, the, the mass of people in governing themselves. Yes, we have elites. Yes, they're extremely powerful. But by and large, they can't get away with everything. 
And there's no better example of that than 2006, when President George W. Bush, who'd just been reelected by a pretty good margin, and uh, John McCain in the Senate tried to shove through an amnesty bill. And one man broke that bill, and that was Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh, for the only time in his radio career, urged people to call into D.C. and stop the amnesty bill. And darned if they didn't. And the amnesty bill had to be pulled out. We saw it again just last week. Speaker Johnson got an earful from the people back home. He had to pull any support from this current border bill. You know, I, I have a question about that relating to, you know, calling our congressmen. They're supposed to be our representatives. And uh, most of the time they don't represent us. Uh, neither do our senators. You know, why don't we, the people, call in more and express our opinions more? Um, you know, obviously with the Rush Limbaugh thing in, in 2006, that worked. And then just recently when people called Speaker Johnson, that worked as well. Why don't we do that more often? Okay, uh, good question. First of all, times have changed in terms of communication. There was a time when you could actually get someone to answer a phone in D.C. or in the congressman's office. That's no longer the case. Um, they, they basically turn everything off to an answering machine, and then they don't listen to the answering machine because they know what's going to be on it, and they don't want to hear it. Letter writing doesn't work anymore. We're way beyond the era of letters. Um, maybe telegrams and, and faxes work, but basically you have to go in person to your congressman's office, either in D.C. or in your home district, and, and lobby them in person. And it helps if you have a few big donors with you because they listen to donors more than anybody else right now. There's exceptions. My congressman, Andy Biggs, is fantastic. Wouldn't trade him for anybody. But by and large, they are donor-driven now. And so if you can't go in with money and say, you're not getting this money if you don't vote this way on this bill, they're not going to listen to you. So the times have changed, especially in terms of communications. That's so interesting and so intriguing. You know, my congressman, uh, Congressman Mark Alford, who I'm personal friends with here in the 4th District of Missouri, he's good at, at you know, communicating with his people as well. He has uh, something in his in his office in Raymore, Missouri, called Mondays with Mark, where he goes to his office and he invites people to come on in, express their opinion. He'll write down notes and see what he can do to help us. Um, and, and I think that is how our founding fathers kind of intended it. Uh, but we've turned away from the foundation of our nation, where it's supposed to be a representative, you know, kind of thing where they're only representing those who give them big money. And it's time that we, the people, the voters, stop that. Now, we know that there's election fraud and, and we need to figure that out as well. Uh, but it, it, it's time that we make our voices heard um, in numerous ways. I'm looking at, at, at X right now and uh, in England currently, uh, a bunch of farmers are protesting um, a bunch of things and they're winning right now. So you see yes. all these tractors, uh, you know, they're just, you're go they're going on the streets with the tractors and they're protesting um, everything that's going on in England uh, that is, tr that, that's trying to take off, you know, take away money, take away uh, whatever from farmers. We need to do the exact same thing. We saw that in, in Canada with the truckers convoys and, um, they didn't win, unfortunately, because of how tyrannical uh, Canada is. But we need to start doing similar things in the United States of America to win our country back. Um, uh, Larry, I want to take a shift here. 
Um, can, can you talk to me about your new book that you have coming out, A Patriot's History of Globalism? Um, obviously, you have the cover right behind you uh, for those watching on Rumble. Um, you know, it, it, I'm intrigued. I've been able to look at the, the preview that you sent me or the advanced reader's copy that you sent me, and I'm very intrigued. Uh, talk to me about globalism and what that sure. means, uh, you know, as far as the past of it goes and then the future. Okay. Well, let's wrap up your previous point with, with two, two comments. First of all, one other reason that it's different to communicate with your lawmakers today than it was, say, 100 years ago, the founders intended Congress to be a part-time institution. The people would show up, there would be a session of Congress for a few months, and they would go home. And it's during that time that they were home when most of the people would stop by and say, hey, Jim, I don't like what you're doing with this bill, right? That doesn't happen anymore. We've gone to pretty much a full-time Congress that almost never leaves Washington. Second point you made about the farmers is fantastic, that they won in Brussels with the EU. The EU had to change policies. They won in France. Now, I haven't seen the policies change, but... Um, there, there's indication that they are going to give in to the farmers in France. So next up is Ireland and England. Those are the two next big uh, protests by, by farmers. And ultimately, the farmers, if they stick together, can win because, after all, we do have to eat. So when you come to a Patriot's History of Globalism, I look at what has in the last 10 years become a very prominent problem for many people, and that is global elites trying to take over control of sovereign nations, whether it's through the World Health Organization, the WHO, whether it's through the um, uh, EU, whether it's through uh, the IMF or various uh, financial deals. Uh, the idea is that a group of elites know better than everybody else, they're smarter than everybody else, and they need to tell us all what to do. And uh, so I looked at when this started, and really it starts around the time of Napoleon with the Congress of Vienna. You can follow it all the way through to the Treaty of Versailles, where Wilson and his cronies established the League of Nations. Fortunately, the U.S. wasn't a part of that. Then in World War II, they established uh, the United Nations, Originally, scientists had hoped to form a group that through the United Nations would control all atomic energy. Well, that failed too. Then they tried financial globalism through the Bretton Woods Agreement. That was fairly successful. It lasted about 60 years. And it's just now unraveling as um, one of the key ingredients to financial globalism was that the U.S. military, particularly the Navy, would support free trade around the world and protect the sea lanes. We can't do that anymore. The people don't want to spend that kind of money on the military. And number two, um, we just don't, don't have the capability anymore. So Bretton Woods is unraveling right in front of our eyes. You see the rise of the BRICS countries. I don't know that they will replace the U.S., but certainly it is another power group within the world now to oppose um, American-only interests or Chinese-only interests. And then lastly, we have medical globalism with the rise of the COVID regimes, and that there has been huge pushback to that. Most recently, a poll showed that only 1% of Americans would take another COVID or China virus shot. 
So I wrap up the book with a big note of hope. I think that we are on offense. I think they are on their heels. And uh, I think this crosses every aspect from wokeism to transgenderism to finance to medical to uh, state state leaders such as Orban. Um, Slovakia recently elected a nationalist. Argentina elected Millet. Uh, Estonia, there were nine elections three weeks ago in Europe, and they all moved toward the populist um, direction. And so we will, I hope, cap this off in November with President Trump returning to office. I I certainly do, too. And I want to touch on something. CBDCs, uh, central digital uh, banking currencies, how does that play uh, into globalism and the future of globalism, if there is any future for globalism? Well, there's two sides on, on that story. The one side, originally, this was introduced, as you'll recall, to get away from government control of money. And the idea was, if you have a blockchain, a government can't control that. Uh, so there's that side of crypto uh, that says that this is the answer to international government control. The other side, kind of, kind of the fearful side, says, uh, oh, no, governments will control crypto and we'll all be on digital coins. And so I'm a banking historian. My early work for about the first 10 years was all in banking and finance. People will use whatever money they think they need to use. And by and large, the government can't control it. I mean, uh, in Arkansas, for a long time, they used wolf pelts. In uh, California, they used actual uh, gold dollars that were backed by individuals holding gold. So um, I'm not as afraid of digital currency as many people are. I'm not an advocate. I'm just saying I don't think I think it will be difficult to control. Okay, I want to I want to play this video from 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 Glenn Beck here, and let me know if you can hear this. I'm just now testing. Uh, a new feature with my new laptop. So let's see. Can you hear this? And go. No. Okay. No worries. Uh, we we don't have to play that. Um, it, it, it's really interesting. Have you heard of Clay Clark? No. Okay. Clay Clark. He's the founder of the Reawaken America Tour, and uh, really, what he's doing is he is going across the United States of America. Uh, with someone with General Flynn, Roger Stone, um, all of these patriots, uh, people who love God, love our country, want to reawaken uh, the world to what is going on uh, across the world. And so he wrote this book, The Great Reset versus The Great Reawakening. And it's a response to Klaus Schwab's book, uh, Mm -hmm. The Great Reset. Right now, it's The Great Reset versus The Great Reawakening. And this book, uh, what it does, it reveals the nefarious surveillance under the skin transhumanism plot to enslave humanity. Reality is these globalists, these world powers uh, at the World Economic Forum, uh, at Davos, uh, World World uh, Health Organization, etc. They want to take over this world with all of their lies, with their communism. And it's time that the United States of America steps up and stands up and says, we've had enough. You know, President Trump, when he was in office, um, he he went to Davos and he, you know, spat in the face of Klaus Schwab and he said, America will never become a socialist nation. We'll never right. become a communist nation. We we will never have that under President Trump. Well, now we're under uh, the Joe Biden administration, and there is fear that that is going to happen. Uh, even under the Joe Biden administration, do you believe that we will become a globalist nation or, or a communist nation at some point? 
No, not at all. Um, and what's interesting about Davos here is if you looked at the last meeting, um, almost no major national leaders attended. Uh, Prime Minister of Great Britain, President of France did not go, President of Italy did not go, obviously Putin didn't go, Xi didn't go, Biden didn't go, uh, head of Brazil didn't go. The only one who went was Millet, who went to read him the riot act. He, he basically told them they were a bunch of idiots. Um, and so uh, another thing that pushes back against this is, say, this WHO medical treaty. It's meaningless. To the United States, treaties must be uh, ratified by the U.S. Senate. And such a treaty wouldn't even get 51 votes, let alone two-thirds votes. Um, we have right now a tremendous pushback, not just here, but across the globe against the, the globalists in every way, shape and form. And uh, I, I say there has been a great reset, only it wasn't the one they were expecting. It's just the opposite. Um, so when, when you look across the board at, at states, for example, like Florida and Texas and, and uh, Missouri and other states pushing back against woke with various sorts of laws against uh, uh, mutilation of, of children or um, uh, against various curricula in the schools, it's really quite astounding to look at how the people have responded to all this. And so it's more than just governments. We like to focus on what government is doing what, but um, we're still a nation of the people and no law, good or bad, will ever work if the people aren't behind it. That's so intriguing. Uh, you know, you mentioned Vladimir Putin. Have you had the opportunity to listen to Tucker's interview with Vladimir Putin yet? Uh, I listened to about 45 minutes. So I didn't hear the whole thing, but I did hear his history lesson. Okay. And was it correct? Was it a correct? That was amazing. Lesson? I mean, I, I probably know history professors who teach mm -hmm. Russian, Russian history who couldn't have done what he did off the cuff. He, he kind of reminded me of Newt Gingrich, the way mm -hmm. uh, Gingrich can go across the whole world and tell you what sect in, in Islam is battling, what sect and what city and so on. So it was a masterful uh, history lesson. And let me just say this, there are five or six leaders that the globalists had to get rid of to institute their program. Benjamin Netanyahu, well, they got rid of him for a while, but he's back. Yeah. They had to get rid of President Trump. He's gonna come back in just eight months. Uh, they, they can't get rid of Putin. They have desperately tried to get rid of Putin. There are all these stories about him going to be assassinated. Xi, Xi originally was thought to be on their team, but he's not playing ball with them. So now they got him to deal with. And then mm. the guy in Argentina and Bolsonaro, I noticed they're still going after him in Brazil. Uh, he may he may come back too. So there are all these world leaders who are standing steadfastly in the path of globalism and right now it's world leaders uh, five or six and globalism zero. That's so intriguing to me, you know, because I, I grew up, you know, hearing from my parents who, you know, they're patriots, they're Christians, they love God, they love the country. Um, you know, they were hearing all of these things about how Putin's a dictator, how Putin's a tyrant and how, you know, Putin is, a, a you know, an expansionist world leader. Um you know, and, and I thought that for the longest time. And then I, you know, became friends with General Flynn, became uh, friends with Roger Stone and many of these other people. And I started realizing Putin's not that bad of a guy. And yesterday I came to the realization that Vladimir Putin is probably one of the most misunderstood and most lied about 
people probably in the world aside from President Donald J. Trump. Larry, what say you? Yeah, um, Robert Barnes, the attorney, has a thing called the Barnes Brief that he sends out to everybody on his uh, list. And he had a Barnes Brief on Putin the other day that was magnificent. He, he mentioned that in the first decade after communism, crime skyrocketed and wages uh, plummeted, and that in 10 years, uh, Putin has cut crime in half without significant incarceration. It's not like he's locking everybody up. And wages have shot up, and the people are, are much better off economically under Putin than they were, say, under Yeltsin. So there is that aspect. Um, you know, I, I don't, I just think that Putin is a nationalist. He may have had some original communist leanings, but uh, I don't think he's a communist today. And one other uh, aspect of this that people I don't think have ever appreciated, why does our media hate Russia under Putin so much? Just go back 40 years, 30 years, and they loved Russia. Soviet Union was the best place in the world. Oh, they're just so wonderful. They can't do anything wrong. Now they hate them. Why? It's because Russia is no longer communist. They no longer have that goal of a utopian nation under communism that was supposed to be the Soviet Union. Of course, it never was. Mm -hmm. And now it's just another. And really, this has stung them so bad that they hate Russia now because it failed to live up to their grand communist schemes. I'm convinced that that's what drives many of these people. Uh, it is very intriguing. You know, uh, I, I, I'm so intrigued by this conversation. Um, and, but unfortunately, we are running out of time. I want to have you back on my show uh, very sure. soon to talk more about some of these ideas about, you know, the history of the United States of America, you know, the history of globalism, what that looks like. Um, you know, I, I want to have you on again very, very soon to talk about those things. Um, Larry, where can people find you? I, I know, you know, I scrolled through the website for those watching on, on Rumble, right. but where can people who are listening on audio find you? Okay, I'm at the Wild World of History, www.wildworldofhistory.com, and I have a full curriculum that goes with Patriots History for high schoolers. I also have a full curriculum for world history. Each of these includes videos. I teach every chapter of the book in videos. Uh, you can also get my political commentary at the Wild World of Politics, where I do a thrice a week, uh, that's three times if you went to public schools, Thrice a week, political commentary called Larry's Commentary, Talking Politics. And um, I also have today's news that I put up at the Wild World of Politics five days a week. And basically, I cover the top 20 to 40. You see it right down there, um, kind of to the left bottom, um, today's news. I cover the top 20 to 40 uh, stories in the news with my own commentary and my own wonderful nickname. So you can find me there. Awesome. And then where can people find you on, on social media? I'm at Twitter, at Larry Swikart. Just got to spell my name right, at Larry Swikart. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. Uh, I'm on Truth. I'm on Getter. I don't think I'm any longer on Gab. Um, oh, and last thing, I am teaching through Patriots History. I'm literally reading through the book from beginning to end on the YouTube channel, Wild World of History. 
And I'm currently in the 1850s. Uh, so I've read through the whole book and made commentary. And anytime we come to a document, I will um, read through the full document, like the Dred Scott case. So you can get me there as well. Wild World History Channel on YouTube. Guys, go follow Larry. He's doing some great things teaching people about history. And you know, one of the issues that America is facing right now is they do not know history. History does not tend to repeat itself, but it does tend to echo itself. And right now we are echoing history in the United States of America, and we need to stop that echo before mm -hmm. it turns into repeating that history. Uh, Larry, like I said, thank you so much for coming on my show. I want to sure. have you on again very, very soon. Guys, also, if you go to MyPillow.com and use promo code GENZ, right now there is a Valentine's Day special. If you have a Valentine or if you want to have a Valentine, the thing that you need to do is go to MyPillow.com and use promo code GENZ, and you can get up to 80% off of your order. One of the best deals. I'm friends with Mike Lindell. He's one of the best patriots in the world. Uh, he's fighting for the United States of America. He's fighting for freedom. Go help him. Go help this show out by using promo code Gen Z. Larry, thank you so much once again. Thank you all for listening. God bless you all and goodbye. Thanks, Alex. Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, and my employees and I want to thank each and every one of you for your support by bringing you the My Pill that started it all. My Pillow's patented fill adjusts to your exact individual needs regardless of your sleep position. Because it works, we've sold over 70 million My Pillows, and now I'm bringing it to you for the lowest price ever. For example, you get my standard My Pillow now only 1988 with your promo code. Now's the time to get them for your friends, your family, your neighbors, everyone you know. My Pillows make the best gifts ever. In the times we're in, one thing we all need is getting a great night sleep. So go to MyPillow.com or call that number on your screen now. Use your promo code and you'll get my standard MyPillow for only $19.88. For a more custom fit, my Premium Queen, only $24.98. Or my Premium King, only $29.98. This is a limited time offer, so order now. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We hope you enjoyed. You can also check us out at Stonewall's Perspective on Facebook and Instagram to keep up with the latest news. Stay anchored.